Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality, coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Ed Komarek is standing by to talk about fire, wildfires. What's causing them? Well, he says it is a rabid fire suppression culture to blame. Not climate change, not directed energy weapons, but a fire suppression culture. But he's also sounding the fire alarm that there is a very high probability of terrorist wildfire attacks in the United States and around the globe in the next few years. Pyroterrorism. Fire in Nature, a fire activist's guide, is about changing a global culture of fire suppression to a culture of good fire management where prescribed fire is used to put simulated natural light fires back into fragmented light fire ecosystems. We'll find out what that all means in a moment. The book clearly points out that it is the unnatural buildup of fuel caused by over 100 years of fire suppression that is the real cause for widespread global destruction of forests and grasslands by catastrophic fire. Smokey the Bear and the United States Forest Service and other government agencies around the world have built these powder kegs. And now the terrorists want to light the fuse, releasing the power of multiple atom bombs on Americans, American and other cities. Why go to all the trouble and expense of making an atom bomb when several individuals in a plane or car can light a line of wildfires a hundred miles long under high winds and drought conditions? Imagine a fire hundreds of feet high with the power of multiple atom bombs in a couple of hours could overwhelm all attempts at fire suppression. It could trap people in cities, killing thousands, maybe millions of people, something equivalent to the devastation of cities by firebombing in World War II. Homeland Security is already informed as to the threat. We're about to uh, speak about that. Ed Comerick. Hey, Richard. Good to hear from you. Fire in Nature, a fire activist's guide. We should point out uh, that some of this is your writing and some of it is just sort of compiled from other people and so forth. Now, yeah, what I try to do with my books is, is not just give my opinion, you know, and basically if I say something, I want to back it up. And so fortunately with the Internet, you know, with word searches, you can get pretty good at that. And so I've tried to back up and footnote everything that I say. For instance, we were just talking about pyroterrorism. If somebody does a search on pyroterrorism, Homeland Security, the very top, on the three search engines, at least on my search engines, at the very top is the 2005 paper that apparently is just put up there in the public domain, basically saying what I've been saying all along for years. So they're on to it. Right. I want to address this narrative that's out there, though, that um, you know every year we hear they seem to be ratcheting up the uh, the hyperbole. The 2018, in places like British Columbia, was, I read in some accounts, it was the worst year. Others, it was the second worst year for fires. They're talking now, of, we're seeing wildfires in places that we traditionally don't, in, in wetter, cooler climates, places like Finland, even the what they call the peatland moors in England. Of course, we know where this narrative is going. They're trying to blame climate change for wildfire. What say you to that? Basically, there is 
some probably effect from climate change, but the real driver of these catastrophic wildfires is fire suppression. Way back in the 1920s and even earlier, even the formation of the Forest Service, they decided that fire was bad for the environment, and they've set out to suppress all fires. And starting here in the southeastern United States in the 1920s, they had the Dixie Crusaders that came by with projection screens and everything and trying to get the landowners to quit burning their woods. And what happened was suddenly the quail started disappearing on the rich people's quail plantations here in my area and my neck of the woods here down in southeastern United States. And they wanted to, so some of the people got together and they wanted to figure out why. And they brought Herb Stoddard down to study it and the Cooperative Quail Association. And he did. And one of the chapters of his White Quail book is on the importance of fire. And quail and a lot of other wildlife need annual fires here in the southeastern United States in order to survive. But the against suppression was sought out by my father and his associates and Herb Stoddard. Herb Stoddard was a good friend of Otto Leopold, and my dad was mentored by Herb Stoddard, and he was mentored by Dr. Ali at the University of Chicago, another of, one of the founders of the field of ecology. And my dad was really the first full-time fire ecologist. And they didn't have much luck out west. The Forest Service and other government agencies were very entrenched uh, with the Smokey the Bear propaganda. And so what my dad had to do is, starting in 1962, he really jump-started fire science by pulling together fire conferences from people all around the world. And even the Forest Service at that time wouldn't even allow their own people to come lecture on the importance of fire in nature, even on their own time and at their own expense. And fortunately, that's all changed, but you have this culture out west, a fire suppression culture that's so set that what's happening is as the firefighters get better at putting out fires, it creates more fuel accumulation in the forest. And that, in turn, forces the firefighters to get even better equipment, airplanes dropping retarded and everything else, and keep those fires put out. And until you get in this vicious cycle of fire suppression, and fuel accumulation, and that now is just unloading these catastrophic megafires. So in other and words, when you talk about this accumulation of fuel, you're talking about dead wood, older trees that uh, normally forests would be sort of thinned out with a, a natural occurring wildfire, a lightning would strike or something. It would burn out some of the dead wood. It would be a smaller fire. It could be controlled. But with, yeah, in the absence of these smaller contained wildfires, you have this latent energy that's building up in forests all over the world, really. And then when it does blow, these are huge wildfires, and that's why wildfires are getting worse, not because of climate change, but because of this fire suppression culture. It's worldwide, this idea that we... we... Yeah, yeah. what I say is, is for instance, they use prescribed fire and control burning on the Apache Reservation out west. And if it's climate change, how come the catastrophic wildfire hit, as soon as it hits the Apache Reservation, fizzles out? And the reason is, is they're using frequent fires in the Ponderosa Pine there in the Apache Reservation, and they're using frequent parodic fires, and what that does is it sweeps the forest clean. And what people need to understand is that fire has always been a part of nature. It goes back almost 500 million years. 
to when the mosses first colonized the surface of the land and created enough oxygen for fires to burn and it probably caused a die off of 90% of the species at the time because a lot of those species at the time couldn't handle oxygen. Oxygen was poisonous to them. So fire has been a part of nature and what happens is, is a lot of these what I call light fire ecosystems like ponderosa pine out west and longleaf pine here in the southeastern United States, they are adapted to burning out the competition. So they've got these very well insulated trunks and this kind of flaky bark. It's very good insulation to insulate the cambium layer around the tree. At the same time, they have these flammable needles that they drop to burn out the hardwoods and other competition. So what happens is the pines drive the ones that can't handle fire down into the lowlands into the wetlands. And they occupy, like down here in the southeast, a longleaf pine climax forest, a fire climax forest. But if you get down the lowlands, you have what eventually happens is you have a beech magnolia climax forest, and those beech and magnolia can't take a lot of fire. They can take some, but they can't take a lot of fire. Now, this whole Smokey the Bear fire suppression culture. What is behind that? I mean, are these individuals that started this, were they well-intended, or was there some nefarious plot? I mean, why did they institute this policy? Yeah, well, my dad used to say the road to hell is paved with the best of intentions. (laughs) You have to go back 10,000 years, really, to understand how this culture got started. Back when you had native peoples that were living off the land, what they did is they used fire to tend the landscape. And so all these landscapes that we've got here, these old growth forests, or a lot of them, old growth forests that we have, like longleaf pine in the east and ponderosa pine and sequoia and redwoods in the west, the Indians tended these forests and they opened them up and they built these cathedral-like forests by using frequent light fires because no self-suppressing Indian wants to walk through, hunt through briar patches and get all scraped up and get eaten up by ticks and red bugs and everything else. And so they opened up the land into this cathedral forest. And this, what they did was that by opening up the canopy and letting just enough sunlight to get down the growth of grasses and legumes, that fed the wildlife because most wildlife doesn't eat trees. They eat the grasses and legumes, and they don't eat brush. And so the trees need to be spaced a certain distance apart to be optimal for a good light fire ecosystem. So the native peoples all over the world built up what was seeded to us when they died from disease and conflict and when the Europeans invaded in the United States and also elsewhere around the world. You lost your native fire managers who were using frequent fire as a livelihood, they would, you know, burn like a fire patch. You burn it, and after two years, it fruits out, and you eat blackberries for several years, but then you have to burn it again, or otherwise a brush will come up above it and shade out your briar patch. And so you have to burn a briar patch a certain way. You have to burn for blueberries a certain way. You have to burn for different kinds of wildlife, deer and quail and turkeys and whatever, a certain way. So they went through the woods burning with different kinds of fires, backfires that are really light, head fires where they wanted to really clean out an area or whatever. So they were tending, they were using a very advanced type of what we call permaculture today. Is They were economically developed their substance from the land, and they had this deep relationship, intimate relationship with the land because they were part of nature and they were dependent upon nature, and so they revered nature, and they had this, quote, intimate bond. 
But what happened 10,000 years ago when Native people started, the population started to build up from technologies of, you know, bows and arrows and stuff, whatever, you had more people, you had to go to farming, which, you know, people know farming is, is a lot more work. So you're not going to go to farming unless you've got a hot population that you've got to feed. And so they got into farming. As soon as the Europeans got into farming and using flash-and-burn agriculture, they started to lay waste to the forest, and as they moved into cities and villages, they mined the forest, which seemed unlimited to them, for trees, for building houses, whatever, and for firewood, for all these other different things. And so they devastated most of the forest of Europe during the last few thousand years. So there's very few residual amounts of old-growth forests in Europe. So the cultural memory of the European colonizers is so far back of being part of nature, whereas a lot of the native peoples that were conquered have a cultural memory where living close to nature and living in nature is not that far away. So what happens is people have got divorced, Europeans have got divorced from nature, they separated from nature, they decided they they were to, to conquer nature, and so what happens was this separation from nature it ultimately results in what we have today because what happens is, is they wiped out the forests in Europe, they came over here and they started logging in Jamestown, and they started logging trees for ships to take back to Europe because they didn't have the trees in Europe anymore. And so they started logging in the early part of the 1800s, they just started widespread clear-cutting down the whole eastern part of the United States, and then that all moved out west later in the 1800s during the Industrial Revolution, and people got even more divorced from the reality of nature and being part of nature and whatever in this process. And what happened was that this cutting of all these, these old-growth forests that the native people had been tending and laying waste to all these forests, all this debris from the, you know, the tree trunk is part of it, but what really burns is the pine tops and the leaves and all that kind of stuff. And so what happens is that she started getting some catastrophic fires in these cutover areas, as well as there was no native people there to really manage it, to continue to burn it annually, like in the southeast, whereas nature would have burned it maybe every four or five years, you know, in the southeast, but they were burning it much more frequently and whatever. And so the foresters that came over from Europe got caught up in these wildfires in the latter part of the 1800s and the early part of the century, and they had to fight these fires, and instead of really blaming themselves and blaming people for what had happened, they blamed nature and they blamed fire, and they started this fire suppression policy in the early part of the 1900s that's continued to this day, particularly out in the western United States where it's been so ingrained, and it's quite different. They've had fires in Florida back in the 20s and 30s and 40s that were as bad as in California, but the culture between my father and his associates and some of the Forest Service people that actually rebelled and covertly started prescribed burning after some of these massive wildfires in Florida, the culture never got established. Fire suppression culture never got established, but out west it did, and so it's this constant thing. Now the Forest Service is paying over half of its budget on suppressing fires instead of wildfire mitigation and right. ecological reconstruction projects and right. whatever. So yeah. they're, they're caught in this trap more and more fuel, better and better firefighting, with more and more fuel. And, you know, people like myself are trying to show 
that with the like the ten, uh, the, the, the billion acre plan for the western United States is the way out. How do you, how do you get out of this catch twenty two? How do you get out of this? cultural trap that you got yourself into. Right. Well, that was a, yeah, I have to say, that was a brilliant dissertation. You really um, condensed that down and and um, uh, you did a great job with that. Now, uh, a couple of things I want to pick up on. And one, you, you mentioned ticks. And uh, I mean, this is a bit of a side road, but I think it's an important discussion. We have now Lyme disease. We have people worried about ticks. Is And, and they're saying it's uh, now Lyme disease is near epidemic uh, proportions, but you know the medical establishment doesn't really want to talk about it. Uh, is that then tied into this this whole fire suppression yes. culture, the Lyme disease epidemic? Yes, here in the southeast United States where I live, you know, I do some burning for clients as well as for myself, and I hardly ever see a tick because it makes sense. If you burn every year, the ticks are they don't burrow underground and be protected like, you know, some creatures do, mice and stuff like that. They burn, they get away from these fires. You know, it's hard to really kill wildlife with a fire, with a fire anyhow. But the ticks are all up on the surface and the leaf litter and all that. When you sweep the forest clean every year, you clean out all the ticks. But if you go down to central Florida and places where there haven't been any fires and the ticks are very, uh, are very, um, uh, frequent, and you can't hardly get out in the woods without getting ticks on you, and a lot of them have got Lyme disease, and a friend of mine is actually crippled up. Actually, Herb Stoddard's grandson was doing controlled burning down in the central part of Florida, and a tick got him between his toes, uh, and he got Lyme disease, and it paralyzed him where he can't even walk now. Right, right. And, and, and so, um, so... The, the, the eastern, what happened with fire suppression in the eastern United States is it's not as dramatic, but it's been as devastating to nature as what's happening out west. It's just that you don't see it because what's happened is that you wiped out a lot of the uh, fire-adapted pines and species and, and herbs and grasses and all that kind of stuff in the eastern United States, and, and they were been replaced by hardwoods that are that don't carry fire very well. The strategy of hardwoods is to make leaves that are not very flammable so they don't burn very well so they don't you know get burnt out and the strategy of the pines is to is to create hot fires to burn out the hardwoods and so the, the hardwoods and the pines are all battling it out between each other to survive and so when you clean out the, when the forest is cleaned out with light fires like the native peoples you know did you don't have the problem with ticks and red bugs. It burns up the red bugs too. Fascinating. Here's another thing I want to ask you about, and that is the um, the loss of nutrients in our soil. Uh, used to be, you know, you'd have a fireplace and you'd take the wood ash out to your garden and you'd put that wood ash in the soil, and that was good. There was nutrients in there. Mm-hmm. And you know, about the time I guess electricity came around, and and um, people stopped doing that. Uh, so, do you see a connection then between fire, this fire suppression culture, and the fact that we have no nutrients in our soil and therefore no nutrients in our fruits and vegetables? Uh, that gets in the area of permaculture, you know, and, and this, you know, we have a lot to learn about sustained agriculture and permaculture living, doing our agriculture in harmony with nature. But that's what the native people have been doing for tens of thousands of years, probably 60,000 years in Australia, you know, and uh, over 100,000 years in, in, in parts of Africa and in Europe. Uh, even even the Neanderthals were probably using fire 
to uh, advance their own economic agendas and whatever for game, game and, and fruits and berries and nuts and all these kinds of things. So now uh, and we're going to get into this discussion about pyroterrorism because now we have, again, this latent energy built up in, in uh, forests throughout North America. And it's it, you describe it as a, it's an absolute powder keg. You're See, saying first that we made a, yeah, first we made the mistake that fire is bad for the forest, which is cause accumulations of fuel. And so, so instead of blaming the accumulations of fuel and the and the, the fire suppression activities of policies and whatever, we start blaming ignitions. We blame lightning. We blame arsonists. You know, we we blame accidental cat uh, fires and whatever and whatnot. But that's not the real. There's always going to be people, and there's always going to be nature that's going to be light. They're going to be lighting fires, and so you know, if you build up a powder keg, there's going to be somebody that's going to light the the, the fuse and blow you up. And and so the ignitions is not the problem. Climate change is not the problem. Ignitions aren't the, you know, not the problem. Fire is not the problem. Nature is not the problem. The problem is our own ignorance, our own separation from nature. So we do stupid things. We build our houses out in the wildlife urban interface, and we put eucalyptus trees next to the house. And the, and the eucalyptus is probably the, one of the hottest catastrophic fire types. Now, they just, eucalyptus a lot of times just doesn't burn along the ground. Some of them do. But some of them just blow completely up in catastrophic fires in Australia and burn everything to the ground. And those eucalyptus can sprout out of the trunk after a fire like that. So that eucalyptus or that pine that you've got right next to your house is dropping leaves and needles into your gutters on the top of your roof, your asphalt roof. And whatever, and, and wooden siding, and whatever is it, going is is out to burn burn out the competition, and you're the competition because it's competing with other species and you right. for, for sunlight. Now, so, is that why we see we see uh, in these forest fires sometimes we see houses uh, completely burned out, but then the trees around them untouched, and which has led to this whole conspiracy about directed yeah. energy weapons. And is that yeah. what's happening? Explain why yeah, we see yeah, houses. This, yeah, this is this is where it, their ignorance comes in again. You know, and and it's our culture, it's our separation from nature. Native peoples understand what's happening. If you light a fire and you build up a head fire and whatever, and, and Say there's a catastrophic fire, it can, it can, the head fire can stop at the edge of town, but what happens is, is the, the, all the smoke and all the embers can go for a mile or two and, and drop down into palm trees and everybody's trying to burn palm fronds when they're dead. You know how hot a palm frond, you know, burns because that goes back to the Carboniferous period. They, the palm fronds came adap- very adapted to fire back about uh, 350 million years ago. And, and when, and so those embers hit those palm fronds and those palm fronds drop sparks down onto your roof or the pine, on the pine needles and you got pine needles in your gutter and you got asphalt shingles. Set your roof on fire and burns your house from the top down. But not only that, it can the, the the embers can actually come in through ventilation systems and burn houses from the inside. And so, what you've got is some people have far, have metal roofs and they have you know uh, fireproof siding on the sides of the house and they have defensible space around their house so that the the 
you know, fires other from other buildings and stuff can't get the, you know, can't. But it comes in through the ventilation. Ed, I got to take a time out. Ed Comerick is here, and we'll uh, continue to discuss wildfires and pyroterrorism. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Guys, we've seen so many people making ridiculous money from crypto. But did you know it's easy for you to do the same? The Copy My Crypto membership site shows you the coins that the YouTuber James McMahon personally holds and allows you to copy him. It's like having a big brother who knows what he's doing. You don't need to know a thing about crypto or how to invest as you simply do what he does. So let me tell you more about James. He runs the Crypto with James YouTube channel, which despite heavy censorship, has over 17,000 subscribers and 1 million views. Since March 2020, he's told his viewers to buy 26 crypto coins. Had you put in $100 into each one, it would now be worth over $53,000. Of the 26 coins, his top pick of the year, a coin called Phantom, is currently up over 440 times from when he said to buy. That one call alone has retired a number of people, including guys in their 20s and 30s. Remember, this is public knowledge. You can go to YouTube and verify this for yourself. So, if you'd like to join the 1,300 members who copy James, then stop what you're doing and head over to copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. Copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. That's D-O-L-L-A-R. You'll not only find proof of everything I've said, but listeners get full access for just one dollar. You can't find this offer anywhere else, but act fast because the offer ends soon. That's copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. That's D-O-L-L-A-R. Don't take this offer lightly. He's the real deal. Go visit the site now. Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Ed Comerick is uh, with us, and um, Fire in Nature, a Fire Activist's Guide, is one of his books. We're talking about wildfires and how the culture of fire suppression has led to these um, increasingly intense uh, wildfires that we're seeing around the world. But the big concern now is that there are terrorist groups that will seize upon this um, and 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 start a a truly catastrophic wildfire and homeland security is 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 worried about this um, so how do you i mean how how would this happen in your uh, to your mind would they okay yeah let me finish up a, a little little bit about the, the reason that, they, that one house burns and another house next to it doesn't burn is like I was talking about. One of the reasons is is embers. You know, one house you know has a tin roof and it's well protected, doesn't have any eucalyptus trees next to it or or pines and you know needles on the roof to catch the roof on fire or to catch the siding on fire from, from because there's no defensible space. And people can search the internet for and uh, just type in firewise. And they'll explain to you how to protect uh, your house, you, you know, to fire harden your house from uh, from burning embers and, and, and wildfires. But as we burn, as we've moved from the uh, in the cities and moved out into the suburbs, out into the wildlands, you have the public uh, fire suppression in our national forests, you know, and whatever. That's causing huge fuel accumulations, and that's added to by the people living in that wildlife interface that have a lot of flammable material all around their houses and everything. And so 
what happens is is a catastrophic wild, wildfire that that normally would be burning on the ground, you know, in a light fire, say ponderosa pine forest, you know, and wouldn't be hurting the trees, and it would be you know eco- ecosystem friendly and everything else. Instead, because of all the fuel, it goes up into the crown of the tree and causes the whole crown to burst into flames, which creates these huge uh, uh, fire firestorms or walls of flame. And even if it burns up the people, you know, on the edge of the city in the interface, you know, with the head fire, all these embers start dropping down all over the place to the rest of the city and brought into ventilations and on the, on the roofs that catch on fire and everything else. And so that's why you have this sporadic uh, distribution of, of burned-out houses and whatever, and that's part of it. And part of it is that fire is just fickle. It's always being affected by wind and humidity and whatever, and so... It, the wind blows it one way, very hot, and then it, and it, and it, and it goes and it backs in kind of cool the other way. So even in catastrophic forests like lodgepole pine that burn catastrophically and they have what they call serotonous cones that require fire for them to seed in on a burn and whatever, and those cones can get burned black on the outside and those seeds are still protected on the inside and drop down. But in, even in lodgepole pine, you have places where there's very hot and it burns through all the crowns and then catastrophic fire, and other places where it just backs into the, underneath the lodgepole pine and leaves little, you know, green groves and whatever. So if there's a lot of variables that involve fire, and and and, uh, and that's the reason that people make the mistake of thinking there's some kind of exotic reason for why these right. things have happened and whatever. And so, so now you have arsonists lighting fires, you know, and whatever, you know, into these catastrophic areas and causing a lot of these mega fires. And some of them are actually even firefighters. They, you know, I just, I just noticed today I got put onto it that a, a, a hundred, on the average, a hundred firefighters a year are convicted of arson. Is that right? A hundred firefighters yeah. a year. Why yeah, yeah. on earth? I think Why on look earth? Up, look up Wikipedia uh, fire. Firefight, firefighters arson, and you know that is a Wikipedia ent- uh, entry that I just found there that says 100. That's not all wildland firefighters, but they're, wildland firefighters are part of that and whatever. But that's a whole other thing. So you've got arson that's ready to light the things, but it gets taken to a whole new level in the next several years. Because what happens is the pyro terrorists get in get into into this, and they realize that we built this powder keg. So why did why why should they have to try to find an atomic you know make an atomic bomb or whatever when you have the power of multiple atomic bombs out there in our forest right up next to our cities? So all they got to do is go up wind and light a line of fire with an airplane or a car along the highway, and that and that fire within an hour will will burn through the urban interface the the urban uh, wildland interface to the edge of the city and then the sparks will drop onto the rest of the city and, and create firestorms like you had in Dresden and, and Tokyo. And, you know, the fires that we have now, the arson fires we have now are not too bad because people can evacuate. But if, if somebody lets a, a line of fire north, north of the city or whatever, within an hour that city could be incinerated and people couldn't get out because all the roads would be blocked or people trying to get out and whatever. And it used to be like uh, there was in the central United States, well, it was a really bad fire way back in the 1800s, and people all had to run down in the river. You know, well, you can't do that anymore. You got too far to run, you can, and you, if you can't get out with your car, you're stuck. Right, so, right. And, and, and so you hadn't seen nothing yet. 
you know, and California is right in the terrorist sites because the terrorists have been watching what's been going on in California. First, they started talking about Montana using fire as a weapon in, Mo- in Montana, but now it shifted. You, you can see from the from the uh, material that I posted here just recently on an article I did on homeland security and pyroterrorism. It's on. It's uh, under the more button on my fire and nature book. Anybody can read for free. And, but there's also articles there under the more 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 button that I've written on fire history and pyroterrorism and a billion acre plan to really get our forests and and grasslands back in shape to to end to end this wildfire problem. But it's going to take billions and billions, hundreds of maybe a hundred billion dollars or more, and nobody wants to come up with that kind of money to prescribe fire the good big chunk. So of homeland security, state. homeland security uh, is saying it's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when some yeah. terrorist cell, some lone wolf, decides to light the fuse on this huge powder keg. Um, which could be absolutely catastrophic, as you say. It would be like yeah, the you know, firebombing like the, like, in Dresden. Yeah, like the air, the, the, you know, the, the the terrorists spent years training on how to fly airplanes in the buildings before they did 9/11. Well, we've got the thousands, maybe tens of thousands of firefighters, you know, out out there if with connections to the Middle East. You know, and people traveling back and forth to California, back into the Middle East, and and, and one of the one of the one of the uh, articles that I linked onto my pyroterrorism article, uh, you know, talks about that they're debating, you know, you know whether it's, uh, it, it, it's a good thing to, you know, it's right to burn forests in order to, you know, to kill people and stuff. Read this. This was a, a keynote address at the Firehouse World Conference in San Diego back in February. 2013. The speaker was Robert Baird, the U.S. Forest Service's Deputy Director of Fire and Aviation Management. And uh, this is what he said. The United States is at grave risk of future pyroterrorist attack when terrorists unleash the latent energy in the nation's forests to achieve the effect of a weapon of mass destruction. We must define the threat, understand America's vulnerabilities, and take action to mitigate this danger to our homeland. Now, let's just talk a few minutes, uh, for a few minutes, uh, Ed, about uh, how fire uh, has been used as a tool of, war- of warfare. Uh, I mean, we, people w- might remember, you know, the Second World War, and uh, the Japanese sent uh, these, these fire balloons over to cause wildfires, and, and uh, this was an attack on the U.S. mainland by the Japanese that maybe some people aren't aware of, but these fire balloons, they killed about six people in, in Oregon. Um, how else has fire been used as a weapon? Uh, native peoples and even Europeans used it to shoot fire arrows into thatched roofs uh, uh, houses and buildings in, in towns. Uh, another way is on ships. They used to sh- shoot uh, uh, fire arrows onto ships to catch ships on fire. Right. So there's a lo- there's a long history of of, of uh, use of fire as a weapon. And I, I believe the Aboriginal peoples of Australia sort of used fire to discourage uh, the British settlers coming onto their uh, onto, onto their island. Uh, I don't I don't know about that. I'd have to search it on search it on the internet. But uh, the native peoples fought amongst themselves. You know, used fire at, at, you know arrows to uh, catch their other tribes' uh, buildings on fire. Right. Uh, and, and and it goes on, you know, back in history, you know, in history, pitch bombs, 
you know, you get a, a bomb of per- burning pitch, you know, and you throw it and you heave it over onto the ship and it spread, you know, it spreads out, you know, across the ship and catches the ship on fire. Uh, uh, so fire has been, a, you know, been a weapon, you know, for, you know, as, as long as man has, has fought, uh, you, you know, with other people. He was uh, a, a, yeah. ABC News. It was an issue. Uh, of Inspire magazine, which surfaced on jihadi forums. Again, this is ABC News reporting this. An issue of Inspire magazine, which surfaced on jihadi forums with one article titled, It is of your freedom to ignite a firebomb. And it gave detailed instructions on how to build an ember bomb in a forest in the United States. So there's already chatter out there among certain terrorist groups that this is... This is what they want. These oh, they're already doing it. They're they're putting ember bombs up on kites this last summer, up in, on kites and balloons, and that blow into Israel and it has set uh, a, a lot of uh, fires. And they've all and they and all through Israel, uh, there's like a hundred and something fires all got started at once or something, and and quite a few uh, Palest- Palestinians were uh, were caught and prosecuted on that. So it's, it's nothing new. So it's just a matter of of, 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 of an amber. There's nothing to an amber bomb. You know, all all you got to have is a char, is a bucket full of charcoal, uh, burning charcoal, and the tongs, and you just you, you can just flip it out or sparklers or, or anything. You know, to, but but most people aren't going to understand it. But firefighters certainly do, and so that really worries me a lot because firefighters have the skills, and there's tens of thousands of firefighters that have been trained. You know, to fight fires that have the skills, and it's really not. If you have the skills, it's not really that complicated to to uh, to create a, a a situation like you had in World War II with Dresden and Tokyo. You know, and some of that bombing was deliberately in World War II was deliberately to create firestorms, and some of it just just happened because they you know they bombed so much. But some of it was you know they used flammable you know bombs and stuff, whatever. I think on Tokyo because Tokyo was less a lot of wooden and paper shanties and whatever all through Tokyo, and so uh, there were you know a large numbers of people that were killed in Tokyo as well as in Dresden, and and so it. It's, it's all through our history, as long as, you know, as man has been man, you know, fighting and involved in warfare. But there are solutions to this problem. People, you know, once people realize that they're sitting ducks in some of, the, some of these cities and towns out in the western United States, they can do things. They can, one of the things they can do is they fire hard in their own houses, you know, and they go, they go to, on the Internet and they study, study up a little bit about, how to fire harden your house and to create defensible space for your house, but you can also create prescribed fire buffers around the city, city, particularly where the prevailing winds come from. So that if there was a, a, a pyroterrorist attack, it would hit that prescribed fire zone several miles wide and fizzle out, and so it couldn't get to the city. But but that's going to take a lot of money because it, it, here. I burn per acre for my clients about, it's only about $12 an acre. But you burn in the western United States, it's 500 to uh, $2,500 per acre. So, and you've got millions of acres that, that need to be treated with prescribed fire. And the more you get into the wildland uh, urban interface, the more expensive it gets because you gotta watch out so you don't burn up people's houses and whatever when you're using prescribed fire and whatever. But, but it's, it's got to be done. It's either spend a hundred billion dollars now, or 
are, end up with trillion dollars of damages in, in, in burned out cities and loss of life and everything later on. So how how vulnerable is Los Angeles, uh, uh, Ed, to such a, uh, an attack of pyroterror where the whole city could be incinerated? Well, you, you have you have to look. You have you have to get on the internet and study that. I know some places when I was over there, you know, like where Red, you know Reading got burned out. Was it like a thousand buildings or whatever in Reading uh, this summer got burned out? There's places in California when those winds come in and something nice, whether it's power poles or arsonists or whatever, the catastrophic fires are unstoppable. And I remember like Santa Barbara back in the 70s, I went out on a sailboat and, and, and they, those people built their houses amongst all this brush all the way up the sides of the, of the hillsides and mountains. And so they're extremely vulnerable. You know, to it, and so Los Angeles and and, and the, I've been through the area around the outside of Los Angeles. You got a lot of brush, and a lot of fuel and grasses and whatever. And I have some friends that live north of Los Angeles, and they they had a ranch up on the top of a hill, and that was very vulnerable because the fire could be lit down on the bottom of the hill and just run right right up the side of the hill and whatever. So if if you've got brush and grasses and even combustible. Uh, Fires, you have, you've uh, got ponderosa pine that hasn't been burned for 30 or 40 years, or you've got lodgepole pine, which is a catastrophic fire type, which burns everything in its past just like eucalyptus does or whatever. You're, you're, you're really setting yourself up for big, big trouble at some point or whatever. But is it conceivable and, that the entire city could go up? You'd, you'd have, you'd have, I'd have to see some studies, studies on that, and people don't like to talk about it. They don't even like to talk about this subject. But it's got to be done because you can just see the way, see what's happening is the, the fires are getting hotter and hotter and, 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 you know, and, and there's more and more emissions from people and arsonists and whatever. And we can see when it goes on into pyroterrorism that we hadn't seen nothing yet. And it's going to make, make 9-11 uh, be like child's play if, 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 if uh, uh, one or more cities go up in, in a, a, a line of catastrophic fire where people can't get out. In time, and so there's there. Some are more vulnerable. Than now, Perth, Australia, is a leader. They've got they're they're building prescribed fire zones all all around Perth, and even in in the within the city limits of Perth, I think, or whatever. And 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 in um, in Arizona, in Flagstaff, Arizona, they they've got building prescribed fire buff, buffers all around Flagstaff. So Flagstaff is getting pretty well protected, but a lot of these cities are wide open. And I just don't know about Los Angeles, but but uh, it could it could be it could be vulnerable. And any, anywhere where you've got a lot of dead grass and brush and, and trees that haven't been burned for a long time, um, even chaparral chaparral is a catastrophic fire type. It burns, you know, maybe every I don't know, 30, 40 years. You know, have to look at it, you know more up in, on the internet or whatever. When it burns, it burns everything in, in its path. And if you're building a much chaparral, you know, you're, you're really asking for it. But all this has got to do with just public ignorance of nature and fire being part of nature and how to manage fire properly. We've got to go back to what the native fire managers were doing and rebuild these ecosystems, these light fire ecosystems, you know, back to what the, the way they were, the old growth forest. These old growth forests didn't happen. Nature, you know, developed these old growth forest, forest to a certain degree, but a lot, a lot of it was actually managed and created by the native fire managers who burned more and more frequently. So you had uh, cooler and cooler fires. The more 
the more often you burn, the cooler your fires are going to be. The less often you burn, the hotter the fire is going to be in general. Now, you get up into, you know, you've got light fire ecosystems, you know, in the eastern United States and the western United States. And up in Canada, up around Toronto, I don't know what kind of trees you have up there, whatever, but when you get up in further north in arboreal forests and whatever, you get into catastrophic fire types of trees, but what you have there is what you have is a fire mosaic, is that catastrophic fires will burn out one area and another area, and they overlap, and the moose and the game and the elk can move from from one successionary stage to another depending on what their food source is. You know, you know, uh, a fire will burn, stuff will sprout up, they'll be able to eat it, it'll get too high for them to eat, so they need to go to another catastrophic burn. But what happens is you suppress all these even these catastrophic fires, you destroy the, the fire mosaic. That's what they did in Yellowstone, is, is that 80% of Yellowstone is lodgepole pine, which is a catastrophic fire type that burns, you know, the, you know, through the tops of the trees and what, whatever. And they just burned all Yellowstone at one time. And so they wiped out the fire mosaic. But now they're letting fires burn back in Yellowstone finally again and whatever and recreating that fire mosaic. So fire is probably uh, a factor in, in the evolution of probably 80% of the forest. You know, probably not the tropics, but most everywhere else, temperate zones, even, even all the way up into the Arctic. Pyroterrorism, the threat of arson-induced forest fires as a future terrorist weapon of mass destruction. And uh, Ed Comerick is sounding the, uh, the alarms. Uh, so is Homeland Security, although we're not hearing too much about this as a potential threat. Uh, now, in terms of um, hardening your your home or hardening an entire city, you mentioned these these uh, these buffers. So, just in the in the minute or so that remains, let's talk a little bit about that. How do you how do you protect a city? Okay, okay. once you get these buffers in place and whatever, and you protect the wildland urban interface and the city itself. Then you can move out back into the national forest and whatever, and you don't have to worry about burning up people's towns. So you can, so you can, you know, prescribe fire, you know, for ponderosa pine, for giant. We almost lost our giant sequoias uh, here, uh, uh, I think, several years ago, whatever, by a catastrophic fire, because in the giant, there's only that not that many sequoias, and they go back to the Cretaceous. And the only groves that I know about are the ones in California and the ones in China. And how did those sequoias get way over into China? It's because back when the, when the sequoias and the pines and everything, you know, de- developed, it was when the continents were all together and the continents all separated. And, and so you have pines all over the world that all came from original source the same way with the sequoias, which are more of a remnant population. There's not that okay. many left. Ed. All right, that does it for part one of my conversation with Ed Comerick as we discuss fire in nature. I'll be back Wednesday with part two. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.